0: Disclaimer. South Park is the property of Trey Parker and Matt Stone. All opinions voiced are our own and not theirs. The following program contains educational course language and due to its hilariously inappropriate content should not be listened to by anyone. and welcome to episode 21.
1: My name is Sophie. And I'm Amanda. We've already tackled some entertaining topics and we're excited to bring you more. This South Park podcast is like nothing you've heard before as it dives into the complex social constructs that South Park plays off of.
0: We hope you leave today thinking, I learned something today and had a chuckle. Today's South Park episode is season two, episode nine, Chef's Chocolate Salty Balls. This episode touches on the Sundance Film Festival.
1: Before we start, let's do a recap. We're going to read you the recap because you don't have time for that. Park City, Utah, home of the Sundance Film Festival. This once quiet town is now a bustling tourist attraction. Robert Redford decides that the festival needs to be moved. They choose South Park. Upon hearing this, Mr. Garrison gets all the class to go see an independent film and write a paper on it. The festival is a huge success, but to Kyle's dismay, Mr. Hankey is being badly affected by the overload of waste entering his home, the sewer. The boys enter the sewer to find Mr. Hanky, and he explains to them about the delicate ecosystem that is being corrupted, much like the town is. Above, the town is beginning to tire of the festival, but they soon discover that this was Robert Redford's intention. Chef realizes selling his recipes has also helped ruin the town. Kyle shows Mr. Hankey to the people in charge of the festival, but everyone there believes that it is a movie idea. Cartman begins selling Mr. Hankey t-shirts and makes a small profit. Mr. Hankey begins to die and is taken to the hospital. Kyle asks if he will go to heaven, but Chef hopes not, but instead tells Kyle he will. He gives him a chocolate salty ball from his stall, and Mr. Hankey is revived. They then approach Robert Redford, who throws Mr. Hankey at a wall. Chef gives him another
0: chocolate salty ball and he comes back to life. Mr. Hankey then puts on a wizard hat and creates a tornado of sewage that begins to drive away all the people from the film festival. Robert Redford and his girlfriend drown in the sewage and the town is saved, except that it's completely smothered in waste. Wendy, who's been trying to get Stan to see films with her, apologizes to him. Cartman also states that he learned something, and I've learned something too. Being a sellout is sweet because you make a lot of money, and when you have money, You don't have to hang out with poor ass losers like you guys. So screw you guys. I'm going home. It's a funny story before we start. We've told our friends, our family and our coworkers that we started a podcast. Array of different responses. But I'm surprised how many people are fans of South Park. One day at work recently, someone brought in some snacks like a fruit tray and a veggie tray and chocolate cake. One coworker was putting salt on her cucumbers and accidentally got salt on her piece of cake. She decides to put the piece of cake in the fridge for later. So as I was putting away the food, I noticed the piece of cake in the fridge and kind of laughed. And my coworker suddenly says, put them in your mouth and suck them. Suck on my chocolate salty balls. And I'm like, excuse me? And of course she blinks and she's like, South Park, you know, chef, chef's chocolate salty balls. So the moral of this story is if I'm going to tell people that we have a South Park podcast, I need to be ready at any time for a South Park quote to come flying at me at work, hanging out whenever doctor's office i don't know don't <laughs> fuck with wendy testerberger <laughs> yeah exactly so the topic for today is we're going to talk about the sundance festival sundance is the largest independent film festival in the u.s with more than forty-six thousand people attending in 2016 it's held in january in park city salt lake city and the sundance resort a ski resort near provo utah and acts as a showcase for new work from american and international independent filmmakers the festival consists of competitive sections for american and international dramatic and documentary films both feature films and short films and a group of out of competition sections including next new frontier spotlight midnight sundance kids from the collection premieres and documentary premieres The festival has changed over the decades from a low-profile venue for small-budget, independent creators from outside the Hollywood system to a media extravaganza for Hollywood celebrity actors, paparazzi, and luxury lounges set up by companies not affiliated with Sundance. This episode is a giant commentary on the Sundance Film Festival and its chairperson, Robert Redford. It claims to be an independent film festival, however, over the years it's been transformed into a big Hollywood event. Matt Stone and Trey Parker have some personal history with Sundance. They attempted to get their first film Cannibal the Musical to screen there and it was rejected. According to Lloyd Kuffman, founder of Troma Entertainment, who releases Cannibal, Stone and Parker rented out some space and screened their movie in Park City the year they were rejected. This apparently inspired Troma to start Troma Dance, that also happens every year next to Sundance in Park City. Until most recently, when soaring costs and restrictive advertising campaigns in place to push out competition, Troma Dance was moved to New Jersey. Quote, Sundance is the ultimate gimmick, says Parker. <laughs> there is nothing independent or artistic about it, and it's ridiculous. Parker claims there's only one true purpose for film festivals. Quote, look, we all like movies. We're all in entertainment. We all like getting drunk. Let's hire some strippers, get some beer, and party. End quote. Stone describes their first time at the Sundance Festival when they were looking for someone to help them to get their first movie out to the mass market. Quote, it was great, he says. If we thought, well, maybe some cool lawyer from LA or something is going to like this movie and think we're talented and give us a shot at a meeting with so-and-so, and then we can talk about something else. But you're not thinking, this is the deal. I want this, and this is how I want to distribute it. You're just, you made your little painting, and you want to put it up on the wall for just a minute. And that's what Sundance is supposed to be, your outlet to do it. And that's the big joke. It isn't. And now the only place to really go watch independent movies is at colleges. End quote. Yeah, very true. Okay, we've also prepared
1: 23 fun facts about the Sundance Film Festival, courtesy of the LA Times. Thank you, LA Times. (laughs) So, number one, before being called the Sundance Film Festival, Utah's annual film festival was called the Utah U.S. Film Festival and was held in Salt Lake City. Number two, Robert Redford is not the founder. The Utah U.S. Film Festival was founded in 1978 by Sterling Van Wegner, a Birmingham Young University School grad, and John Earle, the Utah State Film Commissioner. Redford, who was married to Van Wagner's cousin at the time, agreed to be the festival's board's first chairman. Number three, you didn't always get to ski. In 1981, the festival was moved from Salt Lake City to the ski resort town of Park City. Number four, reportedly Sidney Pollock, a member of the festival's board, suggested moving the festival to the winter months so that it would be during the skiing season. Quote, Hollywood would be beating down the door to attend. Unquote. He promised. Number five, the Sundance Institute, created by Robert Redford in 1981, took over running the Utah Film Festival in 1985 because the festival needed year-round support and fundraising. Number six, the festival has had several name changes over the years. It was called the United States Film Festival from 1985 to 1989, the Sundance United States Film Festival in 1990, and eventually just became the Sundance Film Festival in 1991. Number seven, the Coen Brothers' debut film, Bud Simple, was the first film to win the Grand Jury Award for Dramatic Film after the name change in 1985, after the Sundance Institute took over the festival. Number eight, in 1988, Steven Sodberg volunteered at the festival as a driver, ferrying festival goers around the city. The following year, he debuted the film, his debut film, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, won the Audience Award. So we went from a driver to winning, that's so great. Number nine, some of the famous films in the late 80s that screened at Sundance included Hannah and Her Sisters, Heather's, and John Waters' Hairspray. Number 10, the Sundance Festival hosted Michael Moore's debut documentary in 1989, Roger and Me. Fun fact, I introduced Sophie to Michael Moore with Bowling for Columbine.
0: Oh, okay, I was wondering why that name sounded so familiar.
1: Mostly because we got on that topic, because of the lovely, (laughs) was it Matt or, I think it was Matt,
0: Matt or Trey? It's Matt. Matt.
1: Yeah, Yeah, Matt Stone. Yeah, Matt Stone, who was a student at Columbine, and in the film, there was actually a featured little cartoon done. So, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend checking it out. Number 11. John Turto was the first actor to receive the Tribute to Independent Vision Award in 1992. Number 12. In 1993, director Robert Rodriguez's film, El Marache, was made for only $7,000, but won the Audience Award, proving that it's not about how much money you spend, it's about the talent. Number 13. By 1994, Sundance was getting so flooded with submissions by independent filmmakers and those with studio backings that Slamdance, a second independent film festival, was created. Number 14, by 1997 the residents of Park City were seeing an estimated $20 million direct investments in their town each year thanks to the festival. Number 15, in 1999 a midnight screening of the Blair Witch Project at Sundance sparked a nationwide obsession with the film, making it the most successful independent release of all time. Number 16, it took 1,500 volunteers to keep the 2008 festival running smoothly. Number 17, the 2008 Festival of Sundance will hand out awards to international filmmakers for directing, screenwriting, and cinematography awards for both dramatic and documentary categories. Number 18, for the 2008 Festival, the film festival estimates a $5 fee to register for a time slot to buy a festival passage and ticket packages. This resulted in the flooding of applications and more than 4,000 were rejected without receiving any time slots at all. Oof. Number 19, in 1985, 10 films received awards at the Sundance Film Festival. By 2007, 28 films were recognized, including those receiving honorable mentions. Number 20, more than 20,000 people attend the Sundance Film Festival each year. As Sophie stated, over 40,000 attended in 2016. 21, Quentin Tarantino's debut film, Reservoir Dogs, premiered at Sundance in 1992. The film had been produced with formal guidance from the Sundance Institute. 22. The film festival is widely held during the third week of January, typically a dead time at ski resort towns. And finally, number 23. In 2008, the Sundance Film Festival received more than 8,000 submissions. I wonder how many they're receiving now. Yeah, probably like... Well, especially last year, with everyone having so much extra time on their
0: hands, I'd be really interested to see how much they're going to get for, like, the 22 year. Well, and especially, too, kind of like what Parker and Stone said, because the festival is being more, like, it's not independent people anymore, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. Like, it is, but it's not. Definitely a lot of Hollywood movies being, like... Oh, well, you know, because of COVID-19, we weren't able to have movies in the theaters, mm-hmm, so let's make mm-hmm. money at Sundance. Yeah, and
1: even with theaters reopening, I'm sure they're still struggling because I know I would rather sit at home
0: and have the convenience of watching the new movie on my couch when I can pause it to go to the bathroom. Good point, good point. I think the only upside to going to the movie theater right now is that you can show up to the movie 15 minutes before, get your ticket, well, where we are i should say get your ticket get your popcorn drink everything sit down in your movie seat and you still have like 10 minutes to go right so that's a nice upside but Mm -hmm. it's actually interesting one of your fun facts about the fact that the residents were what was it 20 million 20 million dollars that they saw each year directed investment into their town because of the festival interesting Mm -hmm. so now i feel like i'm gonna gonna ruin that So obviously, the economic benefits of festivals, they're easy to see and most often cited. Festivals attract visitors, which stimulates the growth of tourism, development of new infrastructure and employment opportunities. By definition, festivals attract visitors and visitors spend money, which boosts the local economy both on and off the festival site. On site spending includes admission fees, parking fees, food, beverage, souvenir sales, but off site generates revenue for communities too. For example, visitors stop at a local gas station, restaurants, so on and so forth. However, while the latter of positive aspects to festivals, there are a range of negative social-cultural impacts that may impinge upon the host community. These impacts include disruption to resident lifestyles, traffic congestion, vandalism, overcrowding, and increased crime, especially in smaller villages and towns that aren't used to having so many people, right? In the episode, Mr. Hankey, who we haven't really talked about as we skipped his introduction episode as it was holiday themed, but we promise we will cover that episode later in the year. Mr. Hanky is being badly affected by the overload of waste entering his home, the sewer. And he explains to them about the delicate ecosystem that is being corrupted much like the town is. So close to where we live, not gonna say what the festival is, there is a village that holds a huge country festival every year the festival usually hosts a sellout crowd about 23,500 people three-day festival it has a reputation of being a party festival many people attend for the alcohol consumption camping and general atmosphere as much as they do for the music once the festival is over however volunteers spend days cleaning up garbage beer cans and broken items that people have left behind have you seen those I've driven past it. Oh really? It's nasty. people literally
1: leave trailers behind, like tents that have concaved, endless guard, like it's just horrible. Clean up after your damn selves.
0: Exactly. Which goes right into from an article on envirotech.com entitled how do festivals impact the environment? Quote for most festival goers the experience will set them back a few hundred pounds This is a UK article (laughs) and perhaps a nasty hangover. For Mother Earth, the damage caused by these hedonistic events could be far worse. Here are just some of the ways in which the festival industry impacts the environment. Transport. By far the biggest source of carbon emissions comes from the exhaust fumes of the vehicles used by festival goers when arriving and departing from the venue. With many festivals taking place in remote areas, individual car travel accounts for well over half of all modes of transport. Fuel. 5 million litres of fuel are used over the course of UK festivals every year, both for transportation and for powering the site during the event. 85% of this is diesel, with the average person using 0.6 litres of the stuff per day, resulting in 65% of the on-site carbon footprint. Waste. 23,500 tonnes of waste are generated every year at festivals. 68% of that goes straight into the landfill. Much of this is compromised of single-use plastics such as straws, bottles, food trays, cable ties, as well as microplastic pollution in the form of glitter and toiletries. Now, what we want to do for each episode is provide you with a place to learn more. Check out the website greenfestivals.ca. It was a project that was made possible by funds from the provincial of Ontario's Ministry of the Environment and Climate Change. The objective of the project was to encourage festival organizers to adopt best management practices to adaptively manage environmental impacts as well as educate vendors and participants about how they can contribute to environmental sustainability. There's even a section on what you can do as a festival goer to be more green. Also for this episode, I wanted to look up Robert Redford because obviously he is considered the bad guy of this episode. And honestly, you can't get mad at him. This is a guy who hated Trump, (laughs) who was an activist for the arts, for LGBTQ, he, I'm sure he was environmentally, you know, he sounded like a really great guy. I think of course this episode was more directed at the fact that Parker and Stone were trying to do more of a commentary on the event itself, but... Yeah. No. You know when we did our Barbra Streisand episode? Oh, yeah. She hated her interpretation. hmm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I don't know if he's seen his, but of course, we just wanted to give a little bit more on the person who they actually are. So he seems like a pretty good guy. I even looked up. I was like, Robert Redford? Controversies. Didn't find anything.
1: I mean, hey, at least he hates Trump.
0: Yeah. No, he... He's... Yeah. So he supports environmentalism, Native American rights, LGBTQ rights, the arts. He does not like the Keystone Pipeline project. He stated that President Trump lacks a moral compass. Mm -hmm. And he announced Mm -hmm. that he'd be voting for Joe Biden in 2020. Mm -hmm. He had obviously criticized the decision to withdraw from the Paris Agreement. So, yeah. It's a pretty cool guy. Yeah, pretty cool Mm -hmm. guy, right? But obviously... You can't make a funny cartoon about, he's a pretty cool guy. <laughs> he's a pretty cool guy, except, you know, mm-hmm. when he's not. <laughs> but he actually used to be an actor. I was going to say, I do recognize him. Like, he's definitely done some things. Yeah, he used to be an actor, and then, of course, mm-hmm. was a director. Mm-hmm. And now he's an activist, and he is the, what's the word? The board chair. The board chair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Good for you, Robert Redford. So
1: Sophie, what was your favorite part of the episode?
0: <laughs> so my favorite part is when Mr. Hanky's getting rid of all the film goers, like Fantasia style with his like McMill's hat and he's throwing <laughs> shit everywhere instead of water. And everyone's like, oh my god, yay, Mr. Hanky, you got rid of them. And the mayor says, oh yeah, now we all have a town covered in shit. This is so much better. So much better. Like, we were just talking about the cleanup of that one festival. Can you imagine having to clean up literal Little shit?
1: shit? Mm, no, thank you. I would move.
0: Yeah. It's time to desert this town and yep. find another yep. one. We
1: are done. This town is abandoned. Yeah." Yep. <laughs>
0: And that's no. <laughs> like, that's why ghost towns are ghost towns. So then, you, know. you got covered in shit. shit. <laughs> and of course, how did Kenny die? Uh, so this episode was kind of funny.
1: So of course, Kenny gets trampled by a crowd leaving a movie theater. But the funny thing is Stan and Kyle aren't present, so of course we still need to get the You Bastards line. So the geniuses that are Stone and Parker had a couple of moviegoers exiting the theater. One finds a penny on the ground and goes, oh my god, I found a penny. And his friend replies, you bastard.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So they still got it in, but yeah. (laughs) Poor Kenny. Poor Kenny. He got replaced by a penny. (laughs) (gasps) Oh, that's awesome. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I get married this weekend. Woo-hoo! So, of course, we recorded our episodes ahead of time, so there'll be no break in between episodes. We'll be putting out episodes weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is at Two Female Prime Ministers. Reach out to us and let us
1: know what you liked, how we can improve, and share us with your friends. And if you really liked us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts so other people can find us. We hope after listening to our show today, you thought, you know, I learned something today. Bye! Bye!